Well, you can open your Bibles to Proverbs 13. Proverbs 13, 1 through 11. Next few weeks, I'll be doing some standalone sermons, standalone texts, and then we'll start uh, the book of James uh, the beginning of next year. Proverbs 13, 1 through 11. Solomon, inspired by the Spirit, says this. A wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. But from the fruit of a man's mouth, he eats what is good, but the soul of the treacherous desires violence. The one who guards his mouth keeps his soul. The one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The soul of the slugger craves and gets not, nothing, but the soul of the diligent is enriched. A righteous man hates a lying word, but a, a wicked man acts odiously and is humiliated. Righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, but wickedness subverts the sinner. There's one who pretends to be rich, but has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, but has great wealth. The, the ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but the poor hears no rebuke. The light of the righteous is glad, but the lamp of the wicked goes out. With arrogance comes only quarreling, but with those who receive counsel is wisdom. Wealth obtained from empty effort dwindles, but the one who gathers with his hand abounds. On this Lord's Day, we'll be considering the wisdom of Proverbs. We live in a world with a lot of information to be sure, but it's important to remind us at the outset of this morning that, that information, information is not the same thing as wisdom. Many of us here from the earliest of ages, we've learned our ABCs, our multiplication tables. We know the capital of Texas. We've read Shakespeare. We've dissected frogs. We've memorized the elements of the periodic table. And in spite of this giant storehouse of facts and figures stuffed in our brains, when we look around us, when we look at ourselves, what do we find? All sorts of chaos, confusion, anger broken relationships, an ever-increasing crime rate, a culture war, a political divide that continues to grow wider and wider. In spite of all the information we have, informed is not the first word that springs to our minds to summarize the state of affairs within our nation. No, a better word is, is probably foolish. We, we live in a foolish society. We're led by foolish leaders. We inhabit a foolish world. And that's why we need wisdom. We, we need heavenly wisdom in a foolish world. There are no answers found anywhere here or, or within that can really make a, a, a lasting difference. We need revelation. And that's what Proverbs gives us to, to, to those who are, in, who, in, who are in desperate need of how to live and make choices that help us flourish as human beings instead of in this self-destruct mode that we seem to be stuck in. What is wisdom biblically defined? It's this. It is the ability to apply the truth of Christ's word in a way that glorifies God and contributes to our well-being. Uh, biblical wisdom is defined this way. It is the ability to apply the truth of Christ's word in a way that glorifies God and contributes to our well-being. The first nine ch chapters of, of, of the Proverbs, as we, as we saw, is an, is an introduction of the book. The writer of Proverbs, Solomon's aim in these first nine chapters was to motivate his son and subsequent readers to want wisdom, to, to desire wisdom. Our, 
our natural disposition is to, is to want a lot of things, but wisdom isn't very high on our, on our list. We, we take wisdom for granted. We think we're smart enough to get by without. A lot of things uh, are, are valuable in our lives, but wisdom isn't one of them. So Solomon spent nine chapters to try to convince us otherwise. And so starting in, in chapter 10, uh, uh, however, Solomon now writes about specific areas of life where wisdom is most needed. So far in chapters 10 through 12, Solomon has focused on two categories of life where wisdom is most needed. So far, in, he's, uh, he's focused on our, our speech and, and our work, our speech and our how we function in our, in our daily responsibilities. In today's verses, in chapter 13, Solomon uh, continues that theme. Uh, we'll find out why these two subjects are so important to God and for us, but for now, let me give you my two points for this morning's sermon. Point number one, the, eter- the eternal value of a righteous mouth. The, the eternal value of a righteous mouth. And point number two, uh, the, the eternal value of diligent hands. Point number two, the eternal value of diligent hands. Verses 1 through 6, we find our first truth, the eternal value of a, a righteous mouth. And, and verse 1 be, begins the, the entire chapter of, of, of chapter 13. It is the introductory statement. Th- verse, uh, 13, verse 1 of chapter 13 says, A wise son accepts his father's discipline or instruction. Some of your translations say that. But a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Uh, verse 1 establishes the basic disposition required for the instruction contained in the following verses. In order to gain wisdom in our in the way we talk to one another and in our work ethic, we, we first must have a, a teachable spirit with respect to our spiritual authorities. When we were younger, when we were growing up, that meant our, our mother and father. The wise boy, the wise little girl listens to their parents' spiritual instruction. And when we get older, we still have our parents in our lives, and and that that dynamic still continues in a kind of an essential kind of way, but then it it grows and expands to elders and pastors of the church and and fellow members of of your church speaking truth in your lives. In order to receive that and benefit from that, we must first have a teachable spirit. We must have a, a humble attitude. Spiritual prosperity and even material success begins with a with a humble attitude. Uh, I was I saw I read a quote from uh, Michael Jordan uh, this past week and he said that the the secret of his his basketball success it wasn't in, in his ability it wasn't in his talent. He said when, when he first started basketball he listened to everything the coaches said. The, the secret of his, of his success was he was like a sponge. Whatever the coaches said, whatever he, he learned and he, he digested and he, and he put into practice. See, the spiritual prosperity and even material success begins with the recognition that, that we don't know it all, that we are in constant need of, in, of instruction. The very worst kind of attitude is to think that you know it all. That's the scoffer, verse 1. A scoffer does not listen to rebuke. The scoffer knows very little about God and how the world works. 
But he or she doesn't know how much they don't know, and so they don't listen. They don't listen to godly advice. They don't listen to spiritual instruction. They, they fail to learn from the repeated consequences that come from being foolish and disobedient to God's word. Proverbs 17.10 says, a, a rebuke goes deeper into one who understands than a hundred blows into a fool. A, a fool will receive a hundred blows and learn nothing. So that's how chapter 13 begins. It, it begins with uh, the, the importance of a teachable spirit, a humble attitude. And then it continues on in, in verses 2 through 6 to, to, to righteous vocabulary. And, and now in verse 2, we, we, we will consider a productive speech. And in verse 3, we'll, we'll, we, will look, we will think about restraint in our speech. Restraint. A couple of years ago, as I was getting off, uh, the, the, was unloading the, on the airport, on the, on, the air, on, the, on the airplane, and we're all getting off. It's really early in the morning, and, and we're at Dulles Airport, and, and uh, there was a gentleman on the phone, on his cell phone. As soon as he landed, he was talking to somebody, and he was, he was got in an argument with the person on the phone, and he was, he was using a lot of profanity. He was swearing a lot, and there were, there were kids all on board. So another gentleman next to him said, excuse me, sir, could you just kind of watch the language? And, and, and as soon as he said that, this, there was this the heated conflict that ensued. It, it almost resulted in, in blows. And the man with the, with the, with the foul mouth, he kept, he kept shouting, this is a free country. This is a free country. I can say whatever I want. And nobody was disagreeing with the obvious. But what he didn't understand was the, the harmful effect of our words, especially that kind of language when children are, are around. And that, that experience reminds me of the little ditty that we, we heard as kids, right? Uh, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And I remember trying to be comforted by that, and, and for some reason it never comforted me. And Solomon says because it's just not true. Because words have power. They do more harm than even sticks and stones. Because what sticks and stones cannot do, words can. Words can penetrate the heart. Words can, can seep into the mind and we just and remain there in our memories. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Did you hear that? That's how much power it has. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And so in the next verses, Solomon compares two types of speech, speech the words of the wise and the vocabulary of the wicked. The, the words of the wise, the, the righteous words, uh, verse 2, they're, they're, like, they're like fruit of a man's mouth. From the fruit of a man's mouth. Do you, do you like fruit? Do you all like fruit? What's your favorite kind of fruit? Oh, I remember when I spent a couple summers in Hawaii, there was a mango tree right outside my, 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 my summer job, and they would just fall, and I would take them home, and I would cut that mango open. And if you ever had a mango from the tropical islands, oh, it is delicious. I mean, I, that experience was so powerful. I would have dreams of mangoes. And whenever I had a good dream, I would, there would be mango trees. And, 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 and Solomon says our, our words can be like the most delicious fruit that we ever, that we ever, that ever eaten to others. They can nourish uh, our, our souls, like, like fruit, nourishes one's bodies. The wise son or daughter listens to biblical truth, and that truth satisfies their spiritual appetites. Look at verse 2. They, they eat what is good. 
instead of a, a, a mom or dad making a delicious meal and, and the children just eating and eating. Solomon says we, we do that when somebody speaks the words of truth, righteous and pure words. You can, you can feed a family. You can nourish a family at a high level. So we want to be fed by the words of the Bible. We want to be fed by those who speak the truth in love. And, and for that matter, we want to be the kind of people that, that feed others the truth of the gospel. Proverbs 10.11 says, The mouth of the righteous is a, is a fountain of life. A fountain of life. Have you ever been on a hike and, and you go up, a, you climb a hill and there's a little fountain and and everybody's standing in line and, and drinking this pure, cold water. Back then, it would, would provide life. It would provide sustenance. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. Because the Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's word is sure. See, what Bonhoeffer is saying, he's, he's saying that sometimes when, when the word of the, of, the, of the Bible is in our hearts, it can be mixed with doubt and confusion and sin and fear. But when a fellow believer speaks that same word to us in, in those times, the word spoken often rings more truer and more, more powerful than the, than the word struggling to take hold in our hearts. This is the power of the tongue. The tongue gives this kind of spiritual life. Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Parents, how often do we, do we encourage our children with our words? How often, like flowers in a garden, do we water our children's souls with loving words and kind words and, and words of grace and words that, that lift anxiety and worry and, and replace that worry with joy? Dane Ortland he suggests the following phrases we can say to our kids on a regular basis. Phrases like this, I adore you. Phrases like, like this, I can't believe I get the joy of being your father. This next one I've, I've been using the past few weeks, and whenever I say this, my, my, my five-year-old's face just lights up with joy and encouragement. Paul, you are the most wonderful five-year-old in the world. Words like this, I love you. I love you with all my heart. Sentences like this, hold your head up, aha, you are God's very image. I'm crazy about you. Then Ortland says, let's drown our children in a flood of affection and honor in this merciless, put-down world. Solomon ends verse 2 with the heart, with the soul. The soul of the treacherous desires violence. It's an imprecise antithesis. And it's there because this is where words come from. Jesus said, from out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. And the imprecise antithesis of verse 2 suggests that the mouth of the treacherous don't feed others words of truth and wisdom. They don't feed on the words of the wise themselves. And the reason for this rejection is because of what's inside their heart. The, the, the heart of the treacherous, they desire violence instead of spiritual growth. And they wake up in the morning, 
and they go to work, they want to dominate. They want to, they want to take over the world instead of growing in Christ. The Hebrew word for, for violence is Hamas. The, the unregenerate are, are, are filled with varying degrees of this, this, this hatred toward others. Their people are mere obstacles in the way of their success, of them climbing the ladder. And so instead of open encouragement, there is secret gossip and slander. Instead of in, internal restraint during rush hour, there is cursing and complaining. Instead of sweet conversations filled with love and marriages, there is constant quarreling and insults and yelling and that that all those, all those wicked words come from a violent heart. So we go from listening to our authority figures in verse 1. We, we just looked at eating, eating and feeding others the fruit of wise words in verse 2. And in verse 3, we, we look at restraining our words. Uh, restraining our words. The, the wise man or the wise woman exercises thoughtful restraint with his or her speech. Verse 3 begins, the one who guards his mouth keeps his soul. It's been said that the average, average American speaks about 700 times a day. Even if that number was half that, 350 times, or even half that number, uh, 175 times, there is still very few things we do 175 times a day. And yes, we have a legal right as American citizens to say whatever we want, but when we become Christians, we surrender that right and we stop blurting out whatever we feel. We stop say, prefacing our statements, well, I'm just being honest. No, we take every thought captive to Christ, and that means we, we take every thought, we take every word, every, 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 every kind of sentence captive to the obedience of Christ. You see, God cares more about the quality of our words than the quantity of our words. It's not that the wise person never talks. It's that we choose our words very carefully. Proverbs 17, 27, and 28 says, He who holds back his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of discernment. Even an ignorant fool, when he keeps silent, is considered wise. See, if, you, if, my, if my little children would only keep their mouths shut, you would think they were very wise children. You can pretend to be wise just by, by being silent. Our words ought to be balanced, beautiful, valuable as the most precious jewelry. We need to work just as hard on what we say to others as the craftsman makes a diamond ring in the, in the heat of the forge. Proverbs 20.15 says this, there is gold, there is, a, there is an abundance of pearls, but the lips of knowledge are a more precious vessel. In other words, righteous, pure speech is rare. It is valuable in God's eyes. God is saying that a, that a high quality of, of, of verbiage is, is, is supremely precious to him. Specifically, specifically in verse 3, Solomon says the one who guards his mouth, keeps his soul. That word keeps his, he protects his soul. That we can protect the health of our, of our inner life by wisely choosing our words. What do careless words invite? What do careless words invite? They invite hostile words in response, don't they? How many times have you said something just a little bit off? 
a tone, just a, a little smidgen off, a volume, just a little bit too high, a, a word choice where, where another word would have been just right, and what did you get back? You experienced a whirlwind of animosity and, and often a bruised and battered heart as a result. I remember years ago in college on a break, I was in New York City, I was standing in the subway line, a long line, it was like, you know, you had uh, 50, 60 people waiting to buy a subway tickets, and these, these two young ladies came, came to me and they said, can we cut in line? Can we cut in line and buy the ticket? And then I, I could have been could have been nicer. I could have said it in a, in a better way. But I was just a little, a little snarky, just a little bit. Oh, and the response, the this this torrent of furious profanity, just like, just you know, just over overcoming me. All because I just chose the wrong word. All because my, my tone was a little off. All because I, I looked at him a little too long. I communicated it in a way that was just a little bit too rebukey. You see, we can protect our hearts by exercising discretion in our speech. Uh, on the flip side, Paul, Solomon says in verse 3, um, the one who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. This is somebody who, who is garrulous with his words. He they're rash with promises made. They, they tell you they'll do something, but they never follow through. They, they disclose information that shouldn't be disclosed. And when you're that kind of person, the ruin is either financial, social, physical, or spiritual. If you don't know how to talk to your boss or your coworkers, you, you'll, you'll never get a job. If, if you don't know how to speak to your wife and children, your family life will be a disaster. If you don't know how to speak to members of the church with love and kindness, the church will die. If you don't know how to talk to God, you might go to hell. Have you ever heard the story of the king in the menu? A king once asked his cook to prepare for him the best dish in the world, and he was served a dish of tongue. The king then asked for the worst dish of the world, and again he was served tongue. And the perplexed monarch asked, why do you serve me the same food as both the best and the worst? And the cook replied, because your majesty, the tongue is the best thing when used wisely and lovingly, but it is the worst of things when used carelessly, carelessly and unkindly. Death and life are found in the power of the tongue. And in verse 4, the, the first half, half of this pericope of verses shifts uh, though ever so briefly, to industry or to work. As Solomon connects our speech and our work ethic together. Successful people, they speak well and they work well. And these, these two categories, speech and what we do during the day, it really encompasses all of life if you think about it. We're always talking or working. And what else is there? What else is there? Solomon puts both of these categories together in one verse in Proverbs 12, 14. A man will be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the good deed of a man's hand will return to him. See, if you watch your mouth in personal relationships, and you watch your work ethic at your job, what's left after that? Uh, th 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 these verses are incredibly convicting because all you do is talk. 
And, and one of the reasons, verse 4 says, why people are so careless with their words is, be, is because they're, they're lazy. Verse 4, the soul of the slugger craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is enriched. See, when you're lazy, you, you just say anything. When you're lazy, you just say whatever comes to mind. You, you don't care how you say it or when you say it or, or, or what words you choose. And the, lazy, the laziness that we that you most see acutely at our workplaces is the reason for this careless careless speech. Diligence is seen most clearly in the way you work, but it's but it's also one reason that, that explains godly speech. True diligent work ethic is also diligent in the way we communicate. The, the soul of the diligent here in verse four is enriched. Whatever the diligent pursue, they accomplish especially when the pursuit is God himself. Now we go to verses 5 and 6, and the generalities regarding speech and industry are now defined in ethical terms. The person whose lips produced and ate good fruit in verse 2, the person who protected his life with discreet speech in verse 3, the person in verse 4, through diligence, who has every appetite satisfied, is now defined as a righteous person in verse 5. And a righteous person in verse 5 says, hates a lying word. A righteous man hates dishonesty. Because the the righteous person loves Yahweh. And who, who is Yahweh? Look at verse 22 of chapter 12. What does Yahweh hate? Lying lips are, are an abomination to Yahweh, but doers of faithfulness are his delight. Why is lying so evil? Why is lying so evil? Because it, it is a distortion of a reality that God has sovereignly determined. To lie is to twist the present reality of the situation that God has sovereignly brought together. To lie to somebody is to attack God's sovereignty indirectly. It is saying that you're God who must distort the reality of the situation for your own purposes instead of just saying, this is how God has brought everything about and my words are going to reflect God's sovereign control of every happenstance. Lying is evil because it, it frays relationships in a community. Truth makes love and trust and intimacy possible. When there is lying in a marriage, when there is lying in a church community, false words conceal us from one another. False words produce this fake community where we, where we just go on playing this, this role of, of community outwardly while, while something else is really going on in our hearts. We need to stop lying to each other, church. We need to be honest and open and say, this is who I am. So help me, God. You see, righteous people hate speaking lies. Righteous people hate listening to lies. Refuse to listen to gossip. Refuse to listen to slander. To stand and, and receive lies told to you. To tolerate evil speech makes you a participant in that evil. We don't want to be garbage collectors here. And, and the problem is, is that we, we love gossip. We just like to hear gossip. We love those whispering, whispering mouths. And so, if we can exercise great effort in rejecting what we love to hear so much, 
If we can resist the, the reception, the receiving of gossip and slander, our church can be this, this safe haven where, where people can come and they never have to worry about what is really going on. They can relax and enjoy themselves and grow in Christ. You see, sometimes we feel so uncomfortable at, at church because we're just so uncomfortable of, of faking and lying and, and being honest. But if we have a community that is committed to honesty, the church can be the, the most wonderful place to be a part of. Speak up when others are put down. Defend, defend people who are being gossip against or slander. When somebody talks to you and, and, and says gossip about another person, consider telling the person, hey, let's go, let's go tell the so-and-so what you just said. Ask the question, do you mind if I tell Jack what you just told me? Look at verse, the second part of verse 5. A, a wicked man acts odiously and is humiliated. See, when you find, when people find out you're a liar, when your word is unworthy, when people cannot trust what you say, it ruins your reputation. You become repulsive to others. There are, there are countless opportunities and ways to bless others with our words. And on the flip side, there are countless ways to ruin others and ruin ourselves with those same lips and tongue. That's why every day we need to pray prayers like this. Lord, don't let one word come out of my mouth that isn't of you. Father, let every, every word I speak be about your glory. May every word be, a, be an offering of, of, of obedience and love to you. David knew the power of the tongue well when he prayed in Psalm 141.3, set a, set a guard, O Yahweh, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Let Jesus be your speechwriter from now on. May the living word affect every word that comes out of your mouth. In verse 6, righteousness is personified. Wickedness is personified. Verse 6 says, righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless, but wickedness subverts the sinner. How we talk, how we work has eternal implications. How we talk and how we work marks a person's fate and destiny. The practical righteousness exhibited in our speech that proceeds from a regenerated heart acts as a protector of the way of the blameless. Verse 6 says, a righteousness guards the one whose way is blameless. That word way refers to the context of your life. That word way can, uh, refers to the conduct of your life. It refers to the destiny of your life where, where every step on the way, on the road to God is made. See, until we get to heaven, the righteousness that your tongue communicates protects your way to heaven. Safety is found in righteous words. That'll keep you safe. That'll protect you until you get to heaven. But on the other hand, wickedness, wickedness subverts the sinner, verse 6. Uh, unrighteous words overthrows the unconverted sinner. It sends sinners to hell. And, the, and this word, uh, this word uh, in verse 6, the word subverts, it has the idea of this suddenness. That, that out of nowhere, your life is snuffed out because you say the wrong word to the wrong person too many times, and it's over for you. 
see, in a sense, our words have eternal ramifications. They have eternal value. The way we communicate to others telegraphs who we belong to and where we're going when we die. In verses 7 through 11, we move from the eternal value of the mouth to the eternal value of strong and diligent hands. Point number two, the eternal value of diligent hands. We, we, we go from how wisdom transforms our speech to how wisdom transforms our work habits and ability to generate income. The way we talk is a, is a moral issue, and the, the way we work, whether as a CEO in charge of a billion-dollar balance sheet or a, a mother raising her children at home, our work ethic and the way we spend our money is a moral issue. It is a spiritual issue. It has eternal ramifications. Then the Lord say in Matthew 6, 20 and 21, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven whether neither both, uh, both nor rust destroys and, whether, and where thieves do not break in or steal for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verses 7 through 11, it's bracketed by the words of, in verse 7, great and wealth. You see the end of verse 7, great wealth. And then in verse 11, you also, uh, verse 11 starts with the word wealth. And uh, toward the end, uh, my translation says, but the one who gathers with his hand abounds. Your translation might have some word that relates to abounds. That's the verb form of the Hebrew word for great, for, for great. And so we see that 7 through 11 is about work. It's about how we spend our money, how we use our money, how we gain wealth, our, resp- our daily responsibilities of, uh, uh, during the day. In, in verse 7, uh, in the same way there are good words and bad words, Solomon says there are two kinds of wealth. Verse 7, there is one who pretends to be rich but has nothing. Another pretends to be bored but has great wealth. There is a wealth that God supplies and provides, and there is a wealth that sinful man attempts to generate his own way for his own selfish pleasures, for his own glory. And, and Solomon says here that, that the unrighteous wealth, uh, wicked wealth, self-generated wealth without the grace of God is an illusion. It's empty. He says that there is one who pretends to be rich, but has nothing. My, my, my five-year-old is like this with his friends. They pretend, they're, in this, they're in this kind of stage where they, they pretend they're rich. Last, last week, my five-year-old boy, he said to me, he says, Daddy, did you know Henry is rich? Henry is his friend in class. And I said, oh, yeah? How is he rich? Henry has a lot of crystals. I don't know what those are. And I said, how many, how many crystals does he have? He has millions and gazillions of crystals. And then he added this about his other friend, Caleb. Oh, yeah, C- Caleb has seven crystals. I'm not sure what these crystals are, but if they're anything like the things we value in the world compared to knowing Christ, they're worthless. The Lord Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and, and forfeits his soul? And Solomon seems to be saying here that no matter what you own, whether you have little and pretend you have a lot, or or whether you have a lot of material wealth, if it isn't accompanied by by a love for the Lord Jesus Christ, you have nothing. You have nothing. Have you ever brushed shoulders with someone extremely successful or wealthy? 
They kind of strut around like a peacock, you know, their chest held up high, arrogant, unkind. They dismiss you with a, a look, a tone. Solomon says someone like that, they're just pretending to be rich. They're just be pretending to be rich because that's not real wealth. They're playing a game like a five-year-old. But the one who has great wealth pretends to be poor. The one who knows the Lord, the one who has been righteous by faith, no matter how little, no matter how much he or she has, because they have salvation, material wealth means very little to him. Even though he or she owns what they, what they own, it's as if they don't own it. Even in a big mansion, the, the godly man or woman is humble and kind and down to earth. You would never suspect they, they owned all this, all this money. It, it, it seems like they're pretending to be poor because their great wealth is in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ because their wealth is that they possess the heavenly righteousness. Brothers and sisters, are you rich? Are you rich? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? See, if you're not you're, and, and you're successful, you're just pretending. You're pretending because Solomon says you have nothing. You have nothing. Solomon is very nuanced about wealth in the book of Proverbs. He's very nuanced about proverb, uh, poverty. He paints a, a multifaceted picture of, of having or not having a true wealth is eternal. It cannot be earned. It, it is given. True wealth cannot be stolen or taken away from you because true wealth is a wealth of the heart that believes, that hopes, that thanks, that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. True wealth is a future inheritance. But there are practical advantages of wealth in verse 8. Verse 8 says, the, the ransom of a man's life is his wealth, but the poor hears no rebuke. You see, when you, when you have a little money, uh, parking tickets make a difference to you. Speeding tickets, the, 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 the consequence of losing $100 or $200, breaking some traffic law, when you have some money that kind of encourages you to, to be the, the best citizen you can be, but, but when you're poor, it doesn't matter if you get a ticket because you don't have money to pay, right? So Solomon's point is that yet, yes, true wealth is eternal, true wealth is, is from heaven, but, but having a little money in your bank account isn't the worst thing to have. In verse 9, just like verse 6 indicated the eternal quality of a righteous mouth, here in verse 9, the, the light of a lamp, verse 9 says, the light of the righteous is glad. In the Old Testament, the light of the lamp symbolized all of your life, your life here and your life after. Uh, having the right perspective on possession makes for a, a joyful life for the righteous. Listen to me. It's not possessions that gives you true joy it's having the right perspective on material wealth that gives you true joy. Did you, did you hear that? It's not having a lot. It's not having a lot of material wealth that gives you happiness. It's having the right perspective on that that gives you true joy. The lamp of the wicked, it says, are, are snuffed out. They, they, they just, they're here today, they're gone tomorrow. You thought you were rich. You were just pretending. You had nothing. It was all nothing. And that lamp will go out one day. Just like the scoffer whose mouth ruins his life because he 
doesn't want to listen. So is the one who pretends to be rich and refuses to hear what truly makes somebody wealthy. To that kind of, to that kind of person, there's just quarreling. Verse 10. With arrogance comes only quarreling. When you try to correct a, 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 an arrogant person, when you try to help an arrogant person know what true wealth is, all they do is argue back. All they do, all there is is just quarreling. But, but those who, who receive counsel, those with big and wide ears, those with a teachable, humble spirit, even if the counsel is hard, even if the words hurt, even if it feels offensive, the one who, who takes all of it in, that is the one who possesses true wes- wisdom, verse 10. But with those who receive counsel is wisdom. I think it was the great poet, Mother Goose, said this. A wise old owl sat in an oak. The more he heard, the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard. Why aren't we all like that wise old bird? Verse 10 says it's because we're we're so arrogant. We're so arrogant. Verse 11, Solomon finishes off this these, this pericope of verses by telling us that, that wealth gained without righteous character dwindles quickly. Verse 11, wealth obtained from empty effort dwindles. If you ask many professional athletes, they'll tell you that great talent can earn you lots of money in a short period of time, but if you don't have character, the money, no matter how much you have, can only vanish. It'll only vanish as as quickly as a puff of smoke. But the second part of verse 11 says, but the one who gathers with his hand abounds. And this is the picture of somebody gathering with his hands. It it symbolizes uh, somebody slow. uh, There there is this slow, small, steady accumulation of wealth by the handful, by the handful over time. Not by a windfall, but a handful A diligent hand is an honest hand. A diligent hand is a righteous hand. A diligent hand is a generous hand. And that kind of diligent spirit is the fruit of real God-given righteousness. God wants us to have a righteous character more than he wants us to be rich. A life of steady sanctification is worth more than a lavish vacation. A big heart is better than a big house. A happy family is more satisfying than a successful career. John Henry Jowett said, the real measure of our wealth is how much we'd be worth if we lost all our money. You see, the kind of mouth we've been thinking about this this past hour, the kind of strong, diligent hands we've been considering cannot be obtained by trying harder or exerting more willpower because a foul mouth is the overflow of a foul heart. A poor work ethic is is merely the manifestation of of a lazy spirit. As Solomon has made abundantly clear at the beginning of the book of Proverbs, he he said that the the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom and discipline, the beginning of of understanding and righteousness, the beginning of justice and guidance, the, the beginning of a pure mouth and diligent hands is the fear of Yahweh. It's the fear of Yahweh. The fear of Yahweh is the direct product 
of regeneration and faith in Christ. Does anybody here have a potty mouth? Does anybody here have a lazy spirit? If so, I invite you this morning to come to the fountain of Christ's blood and wash yourselves anew in the riches of his grace. Colossians 2.4 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of, of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus died for your sins. He suffered your penalty. He took your place. He rose from the dead to conquer sin and death for all those who repent of their wickedness, their self-righteousness, their ambition, and trust in the person and work of Christ. If you do that, God forgives you. If you do that, he will give you eternal life. If you do that, he will give you the Holy Spirit who gives you the kind of wisdom that can now speak beautiful words like, like fruit, like mangoes, and nourish people. You turn to him. He gives you the kind of spirit that gives you a work ethic, a perspective on material possessions that is able to prioritize what is most important in life. This is the, this is the wisdom we need so desperately. 